the Indian Africans. We're chatting about the Indian Africans this afternoon. And this interesting book has been co-authored by the late struggle stalwart and UDF front co-founder Paul David, along with his younger comrades, Kiran Naidu, Ranjit Chunilal, and Selva Naidu. It's quite an interesting dichotomy that is presented in this book because it turns several dominant storylines on its head. Interestingly enough, the book is inspired by a good friend of ours, Umar Bacha, who said that the issue of race, ethnicity, identity, and political strategy has to be re-looked at, that it needs to be turned on its head and a fresh approach taken so that we can understand the Indian experience through African lenses. Have I summed that up correctly, Kiru? Well, it's a good summary, and uh, it's a provocative title, The Indian Africans, because we wanted to shift the discussion away from kind of narrow ideas about who or what we are. And if we look more broadly, you will find that all of our histories intersect at some point or the other. And you were referring to your grandfather's name as being given a name like Gumed. And there's always a good rationale for it in that people named each other, other than their official names, they named each other according to the occupations they did, according to the, their appearance, according to their friends, the, the friends that they kept. I'll give you an example. There's um, Matambu Daddy, who was from my road in Chatsworth, was um, a master soccer player. And at a time of deep segregation in the country, he being of Indian origin, played soccer with the African players. And because he was so strong and you couldn't, bring him down when he was on the ball, he was called Ntambo, as in like his bones were so strong. You know, the word Ntambo <laughs> from Zulu and Kosa yes. is like bone. And that name stuck with him all the days of his life. And, you know, there was another a teacher, a Tamil teacher, uh, who had very curly hair uh, in the same manner that African people have very curly hair. And he was mm -hmm. called Kapri Vaityar, as in the Tamil word for African, <laughs> and nothing derogatory about it. It's a it's a descriptor in the same way, uh, uh, you know, people put descriptions to different nationalities and ethnicities. And so he and Vaityar translates from the Tamil as, as teacher. So he was like the African teacher. So not unusual at all. There were other people who may have had gray eyes and light hair and they would have had mm. names that went with the descriptions of other ethnicities. Yes, absolutely. So, Kiru, as we journey in this book, what would you say are the highlights in the writing experience for you and your team? Well, it's just ferreting out information and getting people to share their stories with us. You know, I'm like my mother, really very inquisitive. Any place I go, I'd be asking things about people. Where do you come from? Who are your grandparents? What do you eat? Where do you live? What do you read? And that sort of thing. So here, just to see the multiplicity of experiences. And, you know, for instance, I mean, your audience here is mainly in the Western Cape, um, Helderberg and uh, elsewhere. And uh, the, a name like Cupido, for instance, which we refer in the introduction to our book, 
is mm-hmm. a very common name in the Western Cape. And the original Cupido came from the Malabar Hills of Southern India. And he's recorded- How fascinating. In the, yeah, in the, in the slave histories, I think it's Nigel Warden that records him as somebody who was so distraught at um, his slave conditions that he attacked mm-hmm. um, his slave mistress with a knife and he was murdered by the burghers by being broken on the wheel. And so that's oh. the, you know, the first reference to Cupido came from Southern India. And um, so it's all the merging of our, our histories through slavery, indenture, colonialism, and um, and latter day sort of capitalism and apartheid. So we try and tell those stories through African lenses as widely as we're able. So Kiru, why should we buy this book? What is the motivation? And what what do you think we will gain from it? I think we'll gain a slightly different picture than we are used to in the conventional history books. So it's not written as an academic piece. It's meant to be entertaining and kind of rich in the diversity of experiences. But one really outstanding thing about the Indian Africans is that for the first time, we publish pictures, actual pictures on board the ships of indenture. Uh, nobody's ever seen these pictures or seen them in print. And, you know, it's it's like almost like finding a picture of one's ancestors on a transatlantic uh, slave ship um, mm-hmm. where we had no idea what they looked like, what the conditions on board. And here we find, you know, men at prayer and seeing the detail on the carpets as they knelt for namaz or women rolling rotis on board a ship or children uh, squatting uh, in the sun for a picture um, or the ship's crew and and how they were around the indentured workers being shipped to colonial Natal. So I think that's the more extraordinary part. And of course, the, the vignettes that pepper the entire book uh, just mm-hmm. tell stories from the length and the breadth of our land and indeed our continent. How phenomenal to look at a picture and see some of yourself in there. And these are obviously archival materials, Kibu. How did they come to be? Uh, Were they locked away? Were they recently discovered? Or just in an unknown archive that you managed to source them from? Well, an unknown uh, source, as it were. And it's a, a fair amount of detective work that Selvin Naidu of the 1860 Heritage Center did. He stumbled across a picture that was on social media and it turned out that it was the grandson of a, a ship's captain. Max de Greuter was the, the captain of the ship around the early part of the, the, the 1900s and maybe even the later 1800s. And these documents were kept in a trunk somewhere deep in Australia and Stuart Fairburn, who's the, the grandson, was the person that Selvin made contact with, and we started up a correspondence. And he shared these pictures, the diaries, the clippings. So de Greuter had a kind of what we call a, a counterintuitive historical imagination. He knew that he wasn't only transporting people, but he was changing the, fl- the face of uh, labor migration and indeed of the early days of, of capitalism across the globe. And here he was documenting, not just for a family album, but these were historical processes that nobody else had bothered to capture on film. So it's quite remarkable that we've been able to track these pictures. 
And as you talk about the picture and seeing an image, what we invite people to do is just fix a gaze, stare into those pictures. And it's remarkable how our physical features replicate themselves through generations. So one might look at one of these pictures and see a, a distant grandmother or grandfather in those pictures. And it's quite it's quite moving and soulful when one does that. It's always I, I've seen people I've seen people reduced to tears looking at these pictures when they f figure that might be a distant ancestor. And I think that there is that story in each and every one of us, that, that thread that flows through. Where do I come from? What is my identity? Who defines me? Why is it that there are certain capabilities that I have that I can't quite explain? And we did this exercise as a family cure just out of interest. And we all have a penchant for language. We love language. We pick up language very easily. and We love to use it. And my, my late father spoke Afrikaans absolutely fluently, only to discover that my great, great, great grandfather, his ancestor, had come as a court interpreter to preside over these matters, you know, a laborer gone AWOL, a laborer stole X, and he would be given the responsibility of now translating for the powers that be what the situation was. And that was a nice, a nice affirmation for me. I couldn't understand where that comes from. And it's it's wonderful to be able to have those pieces come together to to explain to you your heritage and your history. So that's quite interesting always. Well, remarkable, that story of Afrikaans. And you will find all the backstories to your great-great-grandfather's role as a court interpreter because the archives are so rich in all this information. I'm just off in a little while to meet a young relative from Canada uh, who's tracing his own great-grandfather's um, life in colonial Natal. And we're sitting at mm -hmm. the archives and the things we're unearthing are really phenomenal. And among the best records are the court records. So there may be verbatim transcripts of what your grandfather translated in a courtroom that's lying in a file somewhere in, in one of these various archives, especially in KZN. Wonderful. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to having some downtime and being able to walk through those archives and try to retrace some histories, Kiru. Most fascinating chatting to you. I'm looking forward to laying my hands on the book. Thank you for the synopsis. It's great. We look forward to more bodies of work like this, which is a kind of repatriation of identity, you know, a love letter to where we come from. So thank you for putting this together with your colleagues. It's been just fascinating. And just for our listeners, Kira has been very gracious and has given us a copy of the Indian Africans. But in addition to that, he has given us a media training session and you'll see the details of all of that on our portal and on our social feeds. Kiru, fascinating chatting. Chat again soon. Well, thank you for the encouragement and uh, phenomenal that I was able to jet set with Janet today. A different kind of jet setting, right? A heritage tour we did, didn't we? Yes, and every time you come to Durban, I'm in Cape Town, which has happened in these I... past uh, 
I know it's crazy. We've got to get our diaries to to synergize yeah. very soon. And I'm looking Wonderful. forward to coming to the market. Trust me, you will have a great supporter in me. I will buy lots. Oh, of you are indeed. Thank you kindly. Looking forward. All the best, Kiro. Take care. All the best to you. Thank you. We're in great intellectual conversation today with Professor Daryl David. He is known as the curator and the creator of many book festivals in South Africa. And he is the only person in the world to have pioneered both a book town as well as a UNESCO City of Literature. Daryl, what a pleasure to have you chat to us today. Hi, hi, Janet. Thanks Carol, so we much. Want, we're very excited to chat to you and, and just a little bit about a history of Daryl. He is a lecturer of English and Afrikaans and was previously at UKZN. He now lectures in the Faculty of Education at UWC. So we're very happy to have his intellectual capital in the Western Cape. Daryl, I was very excited to see that you've written a children's book as well. Um, yes. Other than being an author, serious author and a curator of book festivals, your focus has historically been church tourism in South Africa. So what a pleasure to have a children's book come from you. Yes, Janet. You know, um, when I came to UWC, I said that the one thing that I'd like to focus on is children's literature, because uh, academics tend to shy away from children's literature. And, you know, we are in a faculty of education producing the future teachers of foundation phase children. And uh, to me, it was very important to, to lead from the front. And uh, I always knew well, once I started, you know, the South African Festival of Children's Literature, I got a feel mm -hmm. for the field of children's books. And so I, I decided now that, you know, this is going to be my, my lifelong passion because, uh, you know, it's it's really a, a wonderful sight to see the joy on children's faces when you read to them. I think that, you know, the poet Kubis Moorman, uh, once in, at a festival, he said, today I'm going to read to you adults. Because, you know, somewhere along the line, we've lost that connection with reading. Reading has become a solitary mm. affair. And uh, so so I decided to to write this children's book. And, you know, I've always got ideas trapped in my head, waiting to be let loose. And uh, I've had this idea for a story for so many years. And then I said that that would be a story that children would like. And that is how uh, A Place to Call Home was born. Wonderful. And I'm looking at the cover and I recognize these three people on the cover. They look... <laughs> Suspiciously yes. like your own family. It's wonderful um, because you've done this migration. And I must tell you, we just spent some time in the Midlands. I don't know how you ever left the Midlands. It's amazing. Oh, yes. You know, I think, I think you know, you never quite leave uh, the Midlands. And, and, and in a way, I'm glad that you, you asked that question because I think maybe having been in the Midlands, I may not have written this book. But uh, this book almost grew out of, of the heartache of having left the Midlands and Howick in particular, where we lived for almost 20 years. And this story is firstly, I want to say, you know, because I've heard some of the previous talks, you know, about in Indian indenture 
and you know people coming over from India, etc. My book is not as heavy themed as that. But the one thing that I wanted to do with this book before I get on to, to what the book is about, the one thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to represent Indian characters in a children's book. And I think that you will be hard pressed to find literally five books in South Africa that have Indian characters in the genre of children's illustrated books. And so that is one of the things that I wanted to do, you know, because when children recognize themselves in books, all of a sudden there is a stronger connection with the book. And, you know, for so long, the debate in South Africa has been around representation and the representation of black characters. And, you know, I think that Indians have been lacking in this regard. And so I decided you know, well, if the debate is you can't speak for other people, then I'll simply speak for myself. And that is that why... That is an amazingly, I, Im amazingly empowering statement, Daryl. Because mm -hmm. I'm a serious reader, as you know. And yeah. growing up, my dad would bring me like 10 books for the week and I would plow through them. And right. there was a certain point in my life when I felt like my hair was too dark because all the characters right. in the books that I read, their hair was yeah. blonde and that my skin was too dark and yeah. uh, that my features weren't fine enough. And, you know, as a yeah. child growing up, to embrace your identity, you need to be able yeah. to, re to have reinforcement. And whether it was radio or television or books, we didn't see ourselves. Right. So I'm yes. so excited for this because yeah. it's going to give, it's going to hold space for so many yeah. other brown people, young brown yes. people to be able to embrace. Yeah. And you know, when you look at the book, I mean, the, the characters is the main character, Johnny Swanee in the book is based on, on me. And that is why you recognize. And, and what I wanted to do quite deliberately, because since I came to the Cape, I almost get the sense that, you know, there's no Indians like me or very few of us in the Cape, uh, especially where I live, dark complexioned Indians. I think when people think of Indians, you know, they condition to think of Bollywood actresses and, you know, all, all the, the, the actors that come out of Bollywood. And, and that is what they think Indians are. But, you know, there are Indians like me, dark complexioned Indians. And I wanted to portray that. And, and when I gave it to the illustrator, he immediately sent me a proof of a very light-skinned version of me. And I had to go back to him and I, to I told him, no, you make it exactly my hue because I wanted it to be exactly as I look so that children who are my complexion can see that there are people in the world of literature who have a place in books and in these books that they are the main characters and that they have a story to tell as well. But of course, children will, will not see that. I'm talking to you as an adult, as a, as a book lover, as a knowledgeable person about literature. And so that is why I mention it to you. But, you know, when I go to schools and I read the story, uh, that is the last thing on my mind. 
for, for school children, I wanted to tell a story that has nothing to do with skin color, that has nothing to do with bullying, that has nothing to do with your gender orientation. I just mm -hmm. wanted to tell a story that any child mm -hmm. in the world, when they pick the book up, that they would be uh, excited to read the book and that parents would be uh, excited to read the, the, the book to their children at night before they go to bed. And so it's a, it's a, while implicitly the, the message was one about politics and race, the story excludes race completely. The story yeah. actually gives agency, it holds space for people of different hues in yes. our community. And I find it interesting that you say that people think Indians look like people from Bollywood because there's a whole community of people who do not look like that. And a lot of those people in Bollywood have done all kinds of cos cosmetic procedures to be looking more anglicized and have even done skin lightening to be more accepted yeah. in the Bollywood circle. Yeah. And, uh, in I saw that you had Max, um, the owner, the, the author of Wonderful Me at your yes. festival. And yeah. uh, I have a grand niece who lives in the UK and she struggles with the fact that she, and she's a very brown skinned girl. She right. uh, struggles with her identity because she feels she's not she's not light enough. So I took her to meet Max, and Max actually right. did a reading. She read "It's Wonderful Me" to her, and we bought right. the book for her. I did that as my gift. You know, I, I shopped around and I wanted to buy her a piece of jewelry and wanted to spoil her as we do. We get so excited, especially with our young people who are so far away. And then I said, let me give her a gift that is actually about her own identity. So we actually made a trip to Tilba um, right. and then to Rebecca Castile to meet the author. And it, it was, for me, a very special thing because right. you can't remember it today, but it's there in your psyche. It's about right. reinforcing your identity. And I think that this that your book is very powerful in doing that as well. And I'm looking, I'm so looking forward to going and getting myself a copy of this book because it's a narrative that all of us need to actually identify with. And there's a narrative inside each and every one of us, you know, that yeah. needs to be espoused. And whether it's yeah. through the form of a children's book or a, a big serious novel, we yeah. just need to get our narratives out there, Daryl. Yes. You know, I always believe, you know, many people say everyone has at least one book within them. And the thing that, that I realized is that, you know, uh, we mustn't underestimate the power of everyday experiences. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on, on a memoir now, and um, I'm talking about the time when we were children, and I admit that when I was a child, I never read. But mm. in, in, in my house, my parents always told us stories. And, yes. you know, it's, it's, it's the power of stories that ignite the imagination. And so, you know, very often publishers will tell you, oh, but your language is too difficult. Oh, the book is too long, etc. 
my argument with publishers is always, but my book is not necessarily meant for a child to sit alone. The book is meant for parents and the children to sit in one room and maybe for the parent to start reading that book with their child. And thereafter, the child can graduate to a stage where they can read on their own. This notion that our children can't read is a false one and a stupid one, because if people can't read, what should you do? You should actually read to them. And so that is what I wanted, you know, with, with this book, is I wanted parents to sit with their children and read. And, you know, the research actually proves that family literacy is the key to solving the literacy crisis all over the world. And this 100%. notion that, chil that children must read from day one on their own is wrong. And so therefore, you know, we all can write books. And if there's a slightly difficult word in a book, it's not the end of the world. Uh, many theories uh, show that, uh, you know, if the language level is slightly above the child's level of proficiency in a language, they can still read with understanding. And that is why parents are there. You know, parents are there to, to help children. And the one thing that I, I realized when I started with the Children's Book Festival is the power of picture books. Picture mm. books have no words. And yet they tell a story. And, you know, I always tell parents whose children are struggling, start with the picture books. That is what, where you need to start. It's less intimidating. Any child can look at, a, at, a, at an illustration and they can understand the book. That is really wonderful because we all started with picture books, right? We couldn't read, but yes. I, I mean, we were surrounded by these hard, thick picture books that you could turn the pages and they were yes. child proof. You couldn't damage it in any way. They, they took up a lot of space and they were usually themed around something. And, yes. and it was very exciting to open one of yeah. those because it opened up a whole world. You know, the illustrations just yeah. excited yeah. you. And when you migrated yeah. to words, it wasn't so overwhelming, for sure. Yes, yes, you know. And, and you know, most people, when they look at this book of mine, A Place to Call Home, the first thing, the other day, I just went to a colleague's office at work at UWC and I said, you know, ha have a look at my book. And I swear to you, Janet, within 10 seconds, she asked me, how much is it? And she said, I want it for my child because the illustrations oh. are so beautiful. And if you know <laughs> Howick, you'll know that Howick is renowned for the Howick Falls. And, you know, mm -hmm. everyone in KZN, sooner or later in life, they take members of their family. And how many of us have photographs uh, posing at the viewing deck of the Howick Falls? I know. You know? <laughs> it was a you know? thing. And, and we spoke about it last week when we were all there. How many black and white photos don't yes. we have of yeah. ourselves, the entire family standing in front of some sign saying Oraby Gorge, Howick Falls, yes. Peter Maritzburg, yeah. Lady Smith, yeah. it's just those little vignettes uh, yes. are just so amazing. So yeah. I, I'm yeah. so looking forward, Daryl, and I think it is so empowering. It's so powerful what you've done.
because yeah. our identity, we need to start owning our identity from the time when we are children and not having to grapple with the identity crisis when we're adults. And we spoke yes. earlier with one of our guests about intergenerational trauma amongst brown people and how mm. now in our generation where I find myself, uh, yeah. we struggle with things like imposter syndrome. Somebody mm. says the wrong thing to us and then the whole weight of three or four generations of oppression yeah. come, come slap bang onto your shoulders. And it yes. takes a lot of courage to say, I own this space. The space is mine. I will claim it. I will continue to forge forward despite yeah. being challenged because I've yeah. chosen to be here. I've chosen yeah. to be here and I will own it. I will not move. You will change around me. And that has been, yeah. I mean, I've lived here since 1999 and I've lived away from home since 1994. I've lived in different right. cities. And uh, wherever I've gone, you know, usually I'm the only brown person there. And a lot of that has changed over the years, but it's about yeah. creating an identity and a space for yourself. And I think that it's a wonderful gift that you've given to many people to have authored this book, Daryl. And I'm looking forward to it. And and, yeah. and can I just say one last thing about the book? <clears throat> the book is actually based on a true story. It's, it is 90, besides the name Johnny Swanee that I changed instead of my name, everything in the book is true. And it is based on the story of the moment we bought our house in Howick and mm. the house came with two Egyptian geese. And the story is about the Egyptian geese and growing up with these Egyptian geese for the last 15 odd years. And I quite honestly think that it is most probably the only children's story in the world about Egyptian geese. And, and you know, I think when, when, when children see it, their eyes just light up because, you know, they've seen the Egyptian geese flying around water, you know, pools of water in Cape Town, etc. But they've never really looked at, it, at an Egyptian goose close up because it's always and to have and it in your own backyard, in yes, your own garden, yes. how wonderful, yeah. magical. Yeah. So it's a story about the Egyptian goose, but it's a story about anyone who's left home, and I th yeah. and that is why I say that I would never have written the book if I had not left Howick. But it's it's that sense of home that came to me one night when ESCOM put us in darkness for four hours. <laughs> and, and quite literally, I wrote that story in the dark on my phone within a few hours. And, and then I was lucky enough, I found a good illustrator. And that is how the book was born. But, but you know, as I said, I, I think that parents and children will really love the story about the Egyptian goose. It's, it, it's a story so unique that people will think it's fiction. But it's, it's, well, it's all I true. am so looking forward to it, Daryl. And thank you for this gift that you've given us. And it made grace many, many libraries. And made yeah, sits in you. the hands of many a young person and, and, and adults who share the story with them. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us, Daryl. We are in conversation this afternoon with Tilly Govender. She is what 
we would call a phenomenal woman in so many ways, because not only does she have a master's degree in law and honors in education, she's also a certified financial advisor and an expert in executive leadership and uh, has recently qualified as an international coach. And she's the publisher of a book called Soul Nourisher. And goodness knows that in these challenging times, having come out of COVID and facing everything from load shedding to inclement weather and interest rate hikes, we need a breath of fresh air. And Tilly Governor certainly is that. Tilly is the CEO of Mindwiz Transformation Academy, and she has a multifaceted approach to coaching. She's going to tell us about what she does, and we're also going to chat to her a little bit about her book, which uh, I've read and I must say was life-changing. Tilly, welcome to Jet Setting with Janet. It's such a pleasure to have you with us on the show this morning. Thank you, Janice. It's an absolute pleasure and privilege to be here. You know, I'm so excited because I see you doing amazing things on social media. So it's very special for us that we have you right here captive in our show. And uh, you've got a very generous offer for our listeners, which is a personal mastery coaching course. And uh, it's valued at over 4,000 Rand. So thank you for that very generous gift. The book, I think, was just an entree into all of the amazing things that you do. And some of the topics that you specialize in is holistic personality assessments, mentoring and success coaching. But I'm just picking up the tail end of the things that you've told me, Tilly. I'd like you to tell us firstly about the book and what was the motivation in getting you to put this to print? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Janet. It's an absolute privilege and pleasure uh, because I'm actually very passionate about the things that I'm currently doing. And personal mastery is one of my, you know, my favorite pet, I should say, you know, I, I really, really want to change the world because I believe personal mastery is the bedrock of lifelong success. So about the book, as you asked me, what really inspired me? So it, it's actually a collection of original poetry and prose. And I didn't even realize that I had the gift of poetry. So um, I'm actually, I actually dedicated the book. Initially, it was for my family. You know, as I mentally prepared myself to undergo some major spinal surgery, because to remove a suspicious growth, you know, I felt inspired to leave a legacy of poetic messages and for my loved ones. So that was the real inspiration, Janet. And then I thought, what would be the best gift that I could leave if I didn't return from hospital? And I'm sure you know, cancer knows my name. Uh, so I fought many battles with it. But if I wasn't, you know, I just thought, if I wasn't so lucky, you know, this time. And with the grace of God, I survived the operation. The growth turned out to be benign. And family and friends encouraged me to publish this collection which is actually a legacy to the world because I'm I'm alive and because I can. And this book is really about my life experiences, all the, the little pearls of wisdom that I gained through my own self journey, through my trials and tribulations, through life's hard knocks. So I put mm -hmm. it in the form of poetry. <laughs> 
Well, Tilly, it's not everybody that takes, uh, you know, a very a life-threatening challenge and turns it around and creates a body of work that celebrates you and celebrates just celebrates life, which is a gift on its own. Waking up every day is an absolute gift. And forever in a day, we log on to our social feeds and here we've lost somebody else, somebody significant, somebody important, somebody who was someone's mother and sister and, and daughter. So this body of knowledge, this body of work has been really inspiring for the people around you. I know that you do the speaking circuit quite actively, and that's quite just phenomenal that you're able to share that powerful story and give hope to others. I want to transition now to your coaching business and what that entails and how that came to be, because I know you're highly successful in the legal field, in the education field, and a highly successful financial advisor and planner. But why this sphere and what has driven you to move to this sphere? I'm so glad that you asked this question, Janet, because, you know, I have had the privilege of really, you know, experimenting and really playing with many, many forms or mediums of learning, you know, be teaching, be it lecturing, be it advising, because I was a teacher for 16 years of my life. And then I became, a, you know, an attorney. Really, I think I think I would have loved to have had you as a teacher. I would have just <laughs> loved that. <laughs> yes, sweetheart. In fact, uh, Kriji Governor was her teacher and and I had the privilege. I mean, how, imagine she wrote a forward in my book. My student <laughs> wrote a forward in my book. <laughs> Um, you look way too young to have been Krije Govinda's teacher. I mean, really, I cannot work this out, but be that as it may, we'll take that conversation offline. I want to hear about the coaching and how how you transition to that from all of these spheres of work that you've been involved in. Absolutely, Janet. And as I said, I really, really believe that coaching is, is going to be the new game changer in terms of us transitioning from where we are to where we want to be. And being coached myself, you know, through my personal journey, I realized the real magic of coaching because coaching is, is really about partnering with your client. And it's about transforming learning and insight into action. And if you look at my life, I personally believe that coaching was the true, true catalyst in terms of really bring up, bringing out the masterpiece in anyone. So really, that's how what I did is that, as I said, I taught for many time, many years of my life, I advised, I enabled, I inspire, I train. But I feel that coaching is really has to be coupled with all these other platforms of learning. And therefore, I believe that I'm now doing things that's going to be a real have an impact in the world because really coaching Janet is all about transforming personal and professional lives and I do it daily I love doing it through thought-provoking and creative ways and it's, it's purely because I really am fascinated about actualizing the true potential in any individual to maximize anyone's growth and I believe everybody has a real the beauty within themselves and it's my job to bring it out <laughs> so that's why I've, I, I do what I do I think just following you Tilly you shine the light 
and we're able to see the world through your eyes, which is quite phenomenal. And it's a beautiful world. And I look back and I think cancer has got to be the most humbling, horrible disease that there is. And you carry this with so much grace, with so much beauty, and you overcome this, you navigate this. And you actually send out a strong message that says, no matter what's the journey, no matter how difficult the road, you've survived and it's possible to survive and it's possible not just to survive, but actually to completely thrive, which is what you've done. Now, I want to hear about the clients that you deal with, Tilly. What has been some of the aha moments with clients that you've interacted with? I think uh, I'm very fortunate to be able to really connect with all any whether it's you know whether you're in a professional capacity or in a personal capacity. And I think one of my saving graces in terms of it's all about your mindset. And that's why I started this company, Janet, called MindWiz. You know, it mm-hmm. really was from because th- that's what I believe is that if anyone asks me what is the secret to having not just survived but thrived, it's through your correct mindset. You know, so remember, coaching is all about mind. mindset is everything. So my clients get fascinated about the way I can actually change and help change that mindset. Remember, as a coach, you're there to lead their development and not tell them what to do, but actually make them realize their own, you know, self-limiting beliefs, what is sabotaging them. And I think I've, I've gained the art of really bringing out that. And once the client gains that insight and they really take action on their own, the learning and the the progress really becomes uh, astronomical. You know, they just skyrocket. And I think uh, I've had so many uh, testimonials, Janet, I can read them all to you. But the point is I've had people come back to me and then that really gives me the joy. I see the progress. You know, for me, that brings me great amount of joy. I hear you. So if one of our listeners had to gain this prize that you've offered to us, Tilly, what can they hope to expect? Okay. So the, the main important thing for um, the coachee to understand is that it's a journey. And, you know, there's a big difference between mentorship and coaching. And I think that's that's very important, but, but I can actually do both. But if you want to be coached, I think the most important thing is that you need to first understand where you are. And, um, you know, it's like, as I said, uh, with the coach and the coachee, you formed a designed alliance. So, you know, there's so much um, in terms of relation. And once you begin to trust and you feel in a safe space, you open up. So basically, it's about that opening of the deep conscious and subconscious. And, and really, we get down to where you are, why you're there. And basically, we really, through uh, the power of coaching, there's various ways and techniques and models that we use to actually get you to where you want to go. But it's a process. So you can't get that in, well, maybe in one coaching session, it's just building and breaking, you know, all those mm-hmm. blocks to get where you are. It's about facing self. And that's always the most challenging one, right? So Tilly, I, I just want to ask one other question. And that relates to you in relation to your clients and the world around you. 
coaching opens up a whole world of opportunity for you, but for your clients as well, to be able to have somebody, you know, one talks about a journey in life and that one must have a witness. It's important to have a witness in your journey through life. It's quite a special thing to be a coach and be part of many people's journeys. What has that been like for you in terms of nourishing your soul again in that interaction? It actually just reminds me of my own journey. And, and a lot of it is, is you know, it, it gives, it gives me, me more deeper meaning. But for my clients, obviously, they see it as a new experience. But because I've been there, I know how to get them unstuck. So it's all about being stuck. And I can actually just feel, you know, I have a, a deep compassion for people that are stuck because, you know, everyone has blind spots. And by the way, uh, as a coach, I also need a coach because I have my own blind spots. And they Oh, fantastic. On... I'm going to connect you with my friend who said yes. to me yesterday yes. that uh, she has started a 14-month coaching course and she needs to coach in order to make up her hours. So I'm connecting you with her as we speak. And she's quite a quite a phenomenal powerhouse, just like you. So wow. I think that uh, if the two of you resonate, I think it could be a happy marriage of, of coaching minds, definitely. Wonderful. So, you know, that's where, that's where I actually believe everybody needs a coach because I got to where I am today through, I would say, through the help of my coaches. A lot was to do with myself and my mind mindset. And when I really transition with my clients, I understand because I know where I got stuck myself. So there's a lot of compassion. There's a lot of understanding. There's a lot of patience. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of inspiration uh, to accelerate those, those, that growth and effectiveness in the individual. Wonderful, Tilly. Before we close, can you tell our listeners how to reach you? Can you share your contacts? So um, as you initially said, yes, um, I am CEO of Mindless Transformation Academy. And we, you know, uh, you can reach us at, at info, I-N-F-O, at the Mindwiz. And you spell Mindwiz as M-I-N-D-W-I-Z dot C-O dot Z-A. And if, if the quickest way to reach me is by email. And the easiest email that I can really impart is Tilly. My name is Tilly, so T-I-L-L-Y dot inspired at gmail.com. You can see my email address is also about being inspired, not just inspiring. So it's Tilly.inspired at gmail.com. And the name of the company is Mindwiz Transformation Academy. You can find we've got a website. We would love to really, you know, I think the market is more on the um, individual and business. We've got some interesting Enneagram uh, personality, which I'm so, so excited about, that I'm going to incorporate in my coaching as well. Wonderful. What a journey to embark on. Tilly, it's been wonderful chatting to you and inspiring always. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been most enlightening. And I hope that one of our lucky listeners, one of our followers on our podcast will be wowed and inspired by you as they journey and as you hold their hand.